Good morning. I am giving Bob a break today. Usually, when I do this, no particular passage or topic is assigned to me, but today is different. Bob asked me specifically to do what he called a shameless plug for CBCBI, which many of you know is a program we're running right now, the Community Bible Chapel Bible Institute, in which we are working through systematic theology. So what I want to do this morning is speak to you about systematic theology, and I want to do this by asking and answering four specific questions. First question is this, what is systematic theology? The second question is, why is systematic theology valuable? The third question, what protections has God provided to us to guard against error as we build a systematic theology? And the fourth question is an application question. How can I employ systematic theology in my own life and my ministry? Now, please try not to go to sleep on me. A lot of people, when they hear that term systematic theology, say this is going to be dull and boring and dry. Well, it'll probably be as dull and boring as as my other messages, but probably no worse. So stick with me, okay? Let's pray. Father, we are greatly privileged to have your word in our language to have the freedom to study it, to have the benefit of centuries of your people before us who have studied it and thought about it and molded over, and we stand on their shoulders having benefited from their labors and the knowledge that they have passed on to us and the example of their lives. I pray today that as we consider the topic of systematic theology, you would enable us to appreciate what is available to us, and then on our own to endeavor to study your word and to build our own knowledge of it in a systematic way so that we can be more ready to wield the sword of the Spirit. Please guide my words and build us up in Christ. Amen. All right. Well, let's consider... The very first question, what is systematic theology? I would say that systematic theology is nothing but a topically organized compilation of what Scripture reveals about God's person and God's ways. Now, when I say that, that might sound like it's only about God and it doesn't bear on us, it doesn't bear on the world at large. But remember, God is the creator. He made everything that exists. He made it for his purposes. And he has the right to determine how this universe should function and how we should function within it as his servants. And having said that, I would say that systematic theology really covers a very large swath of important topics. It it includes who we are, how we live, what we should be doing. It's not just about the person of God per se. Now, when I say that systematic theology is an organized compilation of what God reveals in Scripture, the only part of systematic theology that originates with us is the way in which we organize it. The material comes from God. It's nothing but taking what Scripture teaches and organizing it in such a way that we have ready access to what God teaches about any particular subject. Now, I would say that systematic theology is systematic in that it's our effort to build a system a grid, a way of thinking about things in an organized way. It's theology because its main topic is God. But remember, again, that since God is the creator, theology really includes 
everything about the person of God and about the way he relates to his creation. So it's a very large subject. Now, systematic theology, if it's going to be sound, must be scriptural. The materials have to come from the Bible. And furthermore, I would argue that they should not come from anywhere else. Now, if you have read systematic theology, you may be aware that there are systematic theologians who would say that we can bring in material from outside of Scripture into systematic theology. Personally, I don't think that is safe or wise at all. Scripture is complete. Scripture is sufficient. And I think that's where we should get our materials. Now, I would say that systematic theology is comprehensive, but it's only comprehensive in the sense that it speaks of everything that Scripture speaks of. There are some topics upon which Scripture doesn't speak, and those cannot in any detailed way be in a biblically-based system of theology. Finally, I would say that systematic theology is authoritative, but it's only authoritative to the extent that what is in our systematic theology is from Scripture. Okay? Now, you may know, some of you older folks, that students from Dallas maybe 30, 40 years ago were famous not for preaching Scripture, but for preaching their systematic theology. I think that's changed. That wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing, but it's always better for us to go back to the Scripture and exposit. But if one's theology is based on Scripture, then that theology is authoritative to the extent that it claims and proclaims what God claims and proclaims. So very simply, let me, let me summarize again. Systematic theology is simply the study of all that the Bible reveals about God and his ways viewed in an organized way rather than a haphazard fashion. Now, let me list for you some of the major areas of systematic theology. You've heard these words before. Most of them come from Greek or Latin. Don't let them scare you, please. Um, anthropology. What's anthropology? Anthropology is the study of what Scripture teaches about the nature of man. Hamartiology comes from the Greek word for sin, it's the study of what Scripture teaches about the nature of sin and its consequences. Soteriology, you probably all know that word. That's the study of how God saves sinners. And included within soteriology are justification, that process where a person has imparted to him the righteousness of Christ, and then sanctification, the process that God takes you through as he builds in you the nature and qualities of Christ. Now, there's something called theology proper, and this is confusing. Theology proper is a subset of systematic theology. Theology proper is simply the study of the person of God himself. Okay, It's more specific within systematic theology. Now, Christology is the study of the second person of the Trinity. Pneumatology, you can probably guess what that is. It sounds like pneumatic, but it's not about tires. It's about the Holy Spirit. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiology is the study of the nature of the church and what Christ created it for, what its roles are. Missiology, that one's pretty obvious, right? Missiology is the study of what Scripture teaches about what we should be doing and what God is doing to fulfill the Great Commission. Demonology, that's the study of Satan and his demons and what they are doing. Bibliology is the study of Scripture itself. By the way, one of the things that we're studying in CBI right now is bibliology. All right, well, we've got a definition for systematic theology I've shown you some of the areas of systematic theology. I'm sure there are some that I have not named. Let's go on to the second question. Okay? Why is systematic theology valuable? Uh, there are probably reasons I haven't thought of, but six come to mind for me. 
First one is really important. Systematic theology acquaints us more deeply with the person of God and his ways. I'm not going to sing for you. I promise. Thank you. I know. You remember the king and the, the king and I? You remember that song, Getting to Know You, Getting to Know All About You? Systematic theology is about getting to know all about God. And the more systematically you think about him, the more you see that he has an organized plan that is carefully laid out and is very impressive and obviously very effective. Now, when you're talking about getting acquainted with God's person, you're obviously talking about theology proper, Christology, pneumatology. Uh, those have special bearing on that. Now, the second thing that I see systematic theology being valuable for in that it, it exposes our own nature and our need for Christ. Okay? If you have a sound understanding of anthropology, biblical anthropology, not Margaret Mead's anthropology, and if you have a sound understanding of homardiology, what scripture teaches about sin, you will be able to understand yourself more clearly and see more clearly your need for Christ. And by the way, that need goes way beyond the day you were saved, doesn't it? It sticks with us all through our lives because we remain sinners. Third way in which systematic theology is valuable. It guides us on how to respond to God and how he wants us as believers to live. Now, obviously, soteriology is big here, right? You need to know how a person comes to Christ. That's justification. And you need to know what God expects you to do with your life after you get saved. That's sanctification. Fourth reason systematic theology is valuable. It equips us for fruitful ministry. Every person in this room has a ministry of some sort. It may be formal, it may be informal, but there are people in your life who you are taking care of, people you are helping, people to whom you may not even be aware of it, but you are demonstrating what Christ is like by walking on earth as his servant. Your ministry will be more effective the more you know of systematic theology, which is just another way of saying the more readily you can take to hand what Scripture teaches in an organized way so that you can use it. All right, a fifth way in which systematic theology is useful. It equips us for spiritual warfare. Now, obviously, knowing about demonology is very important for spiritual warfare, but I'd go back to Jude 3 where Jude calls the church to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered, once for all delivered to the saints. What he is saying there is that we live in a world that very much wants to suppress the truth of Scripture and wants to replace it with something else. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul calls Timothy to stick with the truth and not step aside and give way to what people's itching ears want to hear. Not to preach to please the crowd, but to preach to guide the crowd into the sound knowledge of what Scripture teaches. Part of our spiritual warfare, maybe the biggest part of it, is simply standing up for and maintaining and proclaiming the unchanging truth of Scripture in a world that is pushing us from one side and another, always trying to get us off the center of that truth. So systematic theology is very important for spiritual warfare. Now lastly, I think it's fair to say that systematic theology satisfies our curiosity about all that God is doing and has done and will do. Now when I think about that, I particularly come to eschatology, which is a favorite topic of mine. Um, all of us will participate in one way or another in the things that God has planned for the future. It's not just curiosity that motivates us to want to know about those things, but I think curiosity is a valid motivation for studying systematic theology. I'd like to go now 
and take a quick look at several passages that bear on the value of systematic theology. And I'm going to start with Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Listen to Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. This is God speaking through Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, what is God saying here? He's saying that his ways of acting and his ways of thinking are not like ours. Now, don't push this too far. God is not saying that you can't understand his ways, and he's not saying that you can't follow his thoughts to the extent that he's revealed them in Scripture. But what he's saying is this. If Scripture is not where you're going to get your understanding of God's thoughts and God's ways, you will get it wrong. This is the only place to get that information. And as we build a systematic theology, what we are really doing is we are mining Scripture for an understanding of God's thoughts and God's ways. All right, now how about Psalm 119.105? So many of us have memorized this. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I almost didn't mention this. It almost doesn't need any explanation. But what is this saying? It's saying that God's word is a guide to how we should live. To walk in scripture is to proceed through life. Now, if we build a solid understanding of God's person and his ways, a solid system of systematic theology, and when I say build that, what I'm saying is that every one of us is actually building one all the time. The question is, how well are we building it? If we do that, we will have a ready and useful guide on how God wants us to live. Now, if you will, flip forward with me to the New Testament, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the mark of a true believer, the mark of a disciple who is walking after Christ, is to abide in God's word. And to abide in his word simply means to know it and to obey it. And Jesus goes further. He says that knowing scripture is the key to freedom from spiritual bondage. We all start out life in spiritual bondage. When we come to Christ, he enables us to be free. He provides to us everything we need to be free. Now, if we had time, we could go to Romans chapter 6 and study that passage. And what Paul says there is that although you are in Christ and although you are free from sin, you need to reckon yourself free from sin. You need to act in such a way as to put that freedom into useful action. Now, what is Jesus saying in John 8? He's saying that your knowledge of Scripture is the key to freedom from sin, freedom from spiritual bondage. I won't go there, but if you want something to look at later today, go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. That's a very interesting passage regarding spiritual bondage and the importance of a knowledge of Scripture to help people get free from that. But let's turn instead to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, when we talk about 
My Bible is sticking together here for some reason. When we talk about Scripture and the fact that Scripture is inspired, that it is from the mouth of God, we often read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, but I want to read the verse that follows it with it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, that term man is inclusive. It means the person who is following Christ. What is Paul saying? He is, of course, affirming that Scripture is inspired, and we know that, but he's going farther. He's saying that the purpose of the inspired word is to enable us to be effective in ministry. It's to enable us to serve God by serving others. Now, this is where I get that idea that the key to fruitful ministry is knowing God and knowing his ways. And if you'll allow me to go that far, I'll say the key to effective ministry is actually a good knowledge of systematic theology. Because if you have a sound knowledge of God's person and his ways from Scripture, you will have what you need when you encounter various challenges, various needs in other people. It'll be there at hand. It'll be like a well-organized toolbox, and you reach in there, and you know where your screwdriver is. It's not like me when I need to fix something, and I'm running all over the house trying to find a hammer or something because Caleb left it in the backyard or whatever, or I left it in the backyard, okay? Now, finally, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And then we're going to jump back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. This is a familiar verse. Paul says, Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I know you've all heard this passage taught, and I think you all know it well. I think you're all aware that the only offensive weapon in the Christian's armory, in his equipment, is Scripture. Now, a closed Bible or an unstudied Bible doesn't do you much good, does it? The better you know what's in Scripture, the better it's organized in your head the more effective you will be in wielding that sword. Now, listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. This is Paul speaking to Timothy, who is a young pastor. He says, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. But on the contrary, be diligent to present yourself, approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, that's an interesting translation, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's pretty archaic. I'm reading from the New King James. A more modern translation would be something like accurately handling the word of truth. Now, notice, Paul starts out in verse 14 by saying, don't confuse people, don't get them off track by useless arguments about unimportant things. But, handle accurately the word of truth. Now, it is possible in your ministry to confuse and even hurt people by wasting time arguing about things that don't come from Scripture and that you cannot support scripturally. We shouldn't be doing that. You know, we talk about the ivory tower, and there are some seminary students in here, and you know about some of these 
discussions that we get into in class sometime that get way off topic and really are questions that can't be answered from Scripture. Paul's saying, don't get wrapped up in those things, but accurately handle the word of truth. And I submit to you that one of the best ways to accurately handle the word of truth, in addition to Scripture memory, okay, which is a great thing, is to also build in your head a sound system of systematic theology. Now, sometimes we're tempted to focus our thinking on other ideas, other areas of thought. If we went to Colossians chapter 2, Paul calls those things words to no profit. He calls them philosophy and empty deceit and the traditions of men. Now, I think some things that might fall into this category are things that we try to bring into theology or try to bring into the ministry of the church that really don't belong there. That would include some forms of secular psychology or some forms of secular sociology or even commercial marketing methods. You know how that last thing has infected the church, right? There are churches that are trying to use commercial marketing methods to bring unbelievers in in the hope that once they get them in the door, they can sort of trap them and share the gospel with them. And you're probably aware that after about 25 years of that method, the people who started it have actually publicly admitted that it's not very effective. Okay? Those are the kinds of things that Paul talks about when he says the empty traditions of men. Okay, take the warning of 2 Timothy chapter 2, 14 and 15. We need to be discerning and critical when we encounter the latest Christian self-help fad or the latest baptized, supposedly biblical Christian psychological therapy. More likely than not, what is new will prove to be unscriptural when you look at it more closely. Okay, remember what Jude said. He said it's our duty to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Our job is not to look for new stuff. Our job is to keep the old stuff that's here and to know it and to wield it effectively as we walk with Christ and serve with him. All right, let's go on to the third question. What protections has God placed <clears throat> on sound doctrine? Well, there are probably many. There are two that I'd like to focus on. The first one is very simple, and you all know what it is. All sound doctrine has to come from the Bible. The second one is very much like that, but it's a little more subtle. All new doctrine must be consistent with what was previously revealed in Scripture. Now, I want to explore this second one by going to Deuteronomy chapter 13. This is a fascinating passage. Deuteronomy chapter 13, and we're going to read through verses 1 through 5. This is Moses speaking. He says, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder of which he spoke to you comes to pass, and he says, let's go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him, and catch this, and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you away from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away 
the evil from your midst. Now, this is a remarkable passage. The book of Deuteronomy is the last series of messages that Moses gave to the redeemed people of Israel about 40 years after they came out of the land of Egypt. They had left Egypt, which was a land of pagan idolatry. God had brought them out through the plagues, through the miracles, took them across the sea, brought them to Mount Sinai. Their God had introduced himself to the people more clearly. He had given them the Ten Commandments and the law. Shortly after that, the Israelites rebelled against God, and they were penalized with an additional 38 years of wandering in the desert. And when we come to the book of Deuteronomy, that 40 years altogether is just about over. Moses is going to die, and the Israelites are going to cross over the Jordan and go into the Promised Land. And guess what? They had left Egypt, a land of idolaters, a land of false theology, if you want to think about it that way, and they're about to enter into Canaan. It's also a land of idolaters and a land of false theology. God knew that when they went into that land, they would encounter tempting invitations to participate in new religious experiences. Read between the lines when I say that. And that they would be offered alternative worldviews that would go contrary to what God had revealed. Now, to prepare them and to guard them from deception, God gave them the warning that we've just read. Now, let's think about that warning a little bit more closely. First thing I'd like you to notice is that God anticipates the arising of people from within the nation who will claim to be prophets, messengers of God. And when Moses says, if there arises among you such a person, the force of that is really when there arises such a person. It's going to happen. Now, God also warns them that these people will perform miracles or make predictions in order to validate themselves as messengers of God. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, it's not surprising that they would do that. The surprising thing is that sometimes those miracles or predictions of the future will be effective, they will work, or they will be true, but that does not mean that those people are always true messengers of God. Now, the second thing that Moses warns about is sometimes such prophets will call the Israelites to follow other gods whom they have not known. Now, obviously, any prophet who would do that would be a false prophet. But go back to that idea that these prophets will perform convincing miracles or will make predictions of the future that will turn out to be accurate. Don't miss this. Just because someone shows up and he can do something impressive, he can heal you or he can tell you which stock to buy next week because it's going to go up. Just because somebody can do that doesn't mean he was sent from God. Now, the key point from this passage that I want to get to is what, what Moses says when he says, if someone comes to you and says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Let me turn that command into a principle. Any new doctrinal revelation about God must be consistent with what God has already revealed about himself. Catch that. Any new doctrinal revelation must be consistent with what God has already revealed about himself. If a prophet should come to the people of Israel and say, I want to tell you something. God sent me here with a message to you. God wants to tell you about other gods you haven't heard about yet. 
or God wants you to worship him in a new way, or God wants to create an error that one of the earlier prophets taught you. If that happens, you know the messenger is not from God. No matter how impressive he is, no matter how good his credentials are, where he studied, what miracles he can perform, how well he can predict the future, if what he tries to foist on you is not consistent with what God has already revealed, he's a phony. Now, I think that this is one of the key guards that God has put in place in Scripture for us to help us build the systematic theology from Scripture. There's a principle called progressive revelation, which basically says that as we go from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, God reveals a little bit about some topic at the beginning, and then he gives you a little more detail and a little more detail. And the further you go, the more detail there is about that topic. For example, the identity of the Savior. In Genesis 3, we know that it's going to be a seed of the woman. It's going to be human. In Genesis 12, we know that it's going to be a descendant of Abraham. Later on, we know that it's going to be someone from the tribe of Judah. Then we know it's going to be a descendant of David. Then we know this person is going to be born in Bethlehem. Okay, What you're getting is the progress of revelation. More and more detail being given, but note, every time an additional piece of information is given, it never contradicts what came before. In fact, it's consistent with it. Okay, That's how this principle works. Now think about how this worked out in history. Adam and Eve didn't really know a lot about God, but God had revealed one thing to them, and that was, you're not supposed to eat from that tree. Satan showed up and he said, oh, you really should eat from that tree. They didn't apply this principle, did they? They ate from the tree, and the result was disaster. Do you remember the story of Numbers 25? I'm not going to go there to save some time. In Numbers 25, during that 40 years of wilderness wandering, the Israelites ended up at a place called Acacia Grove. And the, the people of the land there invited them to come join them in one of their religious festivals. And that festival involved sacrifices, it involved feasting, and it involved sexual ways of worshiping their gods. The Israelites made a big mistake. They should have said, God never said we should worship him this way, and God never mentioned any other gods, but they foolishly went along with those folks. And God sent a plague, and 24,000 of those people died in that plague because they didn't apply the principle of consistency of new teaching with what God had already revealed. Now, another example I've already gone through. Think about what happened when Jesus showed up. When he was born and the question went out, could this be the Messiah? What sources of information did the people have upon which to evaluate that question? A whole sequence of prophecies about what he would be like. God had provided the information in advance so that they knew that when a guy showed up who was born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, born in the line of David, etc., 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 that this man could be the Messiah. Okay? If someone had showed up and claimed to be Messiah, but he didn't have those credentials, simple way to answer the question, right? Can't be him, because that teaching would not be consistent with what had been previously revealed. Now we go further on in history. Okay, we get to the end of the the end of the period of time in which the New Testament was written. What does Hebrews one tell us? It tells us that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of the Father. Second Peter chapter one says that we have been giving everything we need for life and godliness. Okay, if someone comes along with a book after the Bible and says, I've got something else you need to know. The Bible is good, but here's another book, and you need this in order to serve and know the true God. What do you say? Uh-uh. No way. You know, when a Mormon knocks on your door, that's what he's saying. 
He's saying, the Bible is good, but there's more that's been revealed and you need that. Well, if you read the Book of Mormon, what will you discover? It's not consistent with this. Furthermore, you don't need to read it because God has told us that everything we need is here. So if somebody tells you you need something else, you don't. It's really very simple. All right. Well, we've looked at the first three questions. The first question was, what is systematic theology? The second question is, why is systematic theology valuable? The third question was, what safeguards has God provided to us in order to guard us from error as we build a systematic theology? That leads to the fourth question, and this is the application question. How can you and I apply systematic theology in our personal life and ministry? This is where the uh, title of the message, Theology and Me, which is pretty lame, but that's where it comes from. Okay. I would say very simply, every person who knows the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior should grow in his knowledge of systematic theology, and each such person should apply that knowledge of systematic theology in his, his or her life and ministry. Now, let me quickly review the six ways in which systematic theology is valuable, and then I'm going to make some specific suggestions. We said that it acquaints us more deeply with God and his ways. That's the first way. Secondly, it exposes our nature and our need for Christ. Thirdly, it guides us on how to respond to God and how he wants us to live. I look like a Boy Scout, don't I? Fourthly, it equips us for fruitful ministry. Fifthly, it arms us for spiritual warfare. And sixth, it satisfies our curiosity about God's plans from past to future. By the way, this is totally off topic. But in the Philippines, when they count with their fingers, this is the finger they start with. Very hard to get used to. Okay. It, it, it was amusing. All right. Well, given that a systematic knowledge of God and his ways, what we call systematic theology, is useful and valuable what practical things can you and I do about it? I have four basic suggestions, and in the fourth one, I'm going to give some more, some even more specific examples. Now, the first one is this. And this is foundational. We need to develop a positive attitude towards systematic theology. Now, I don't know what you all thought when I said I'm going to talk about systematic theology, but a whole lot of people hear that phrase, and it's like, ho-hum. I'm going to go do something interesting, like take out the garbage. You know, um, I was recently speaking to a seminary student, and he told me that a professor had told him this definition of systematic theology. It's doctrine divorced from the Bible. Really. That's a horrible definition. Okay, now, if you pick up a systematic theology book that's just a listing of facts from Scripture organized topically, it might look like doctrine divorced from the Bible. But if systematic theology is taught soundly, whoever is teaching it is just going to keep going right back to the mind to get the information to show you where it comes from. Systematic theology is not doctrine divorced from the Bible. It is doctrine derived from the Bible, tied to the Bible, answerable to the Bible. So we need to have a positive attitude toward this. You know, systematic theology, if you want to say it, is the distilled essence of God's word. We should love it because it tells us about God, the God we love and worship. Second suggestion. Learn to think systematically as you study Scripture. Now, what I'm saying is that as you read, from time to time, stop and say, what does what I just read have to do with how God saves? Or what does what I just read have to do with the nature of the church? I'm saying, learn to think categorically 
Because what you're really doing as you study scripture, whether you know it or not, is that you're building up a body of ideas in your head. Now, if you make the effort to organize those ideas, they will be more useful to you and they become more profound. You know those times when you're reading something and you suddenly see a connection with some other part of Scripture and the light goes off and it's just fascinating and thrilling? Hey, that's what you're doing. You're building a systematic theology in your head. Now, suggestion number three. Study systematic theology to benefit from the study of others. Okay, I'm talking about reading books on systematic theology or, hint, hint, taking classes on systematic theology like the CBCBI. Okay, we have between 40 and 50 folks who are attending that now. And I'm just having a blast studying scripture with those folks. I'd like it if even more of you would come and participate. We meet 6.45 on Wednesday nights, the same time that the Iwana program is going on. We end at 8.30. We are five weeks into the first pair of courses. Each time we have two courses going on. One goes from 6.45 to 7.30, and the other follows from 7.45 to 8.30. Right now we're doing Theology 1 is one of the courses, and Hermeneutics is the other. Okay? If you wish to jump in in the middle of the course, no one's going to complain. We'd love to have you come. Now, each course only runs 10 weeks. It's not a long time. And I don't require homework. Sometimes I may suggest some scriptural passages for you to read. I might give some questions for those who really want to dig in to think about. I will give a quiz from time to time, but it's just for fun. We don't grade them. I don't collect them. It's just an opportunity for us to get together and get a little deeper into Scripture than we can in other formats and to study things in an organized way. And I hope that if you speak to some of the folks who are attending it, they will tell you that they are enjoying it. But that's for them to say, not me. Okay, suggestion number four. I'm almost done, folks, here. Use your knowledge of systematic theology in your everyday life and ministry. Okay? First way to use it. Use it to appreciate and worship God more deeply. Think about the guys who stand up here Sunday morning, led by the Spirit, to share something from Scripture about God. The better you know Scripture, the better that is organized in your head in a systematic fashion, the more able you guys are going to be able to stand up here and to offer something to the rest of the body that's going to edify them. Okay? Now, think of Paul. People tend to think that systematic theologians are dry, spiritually dead people. But Paul was the greatest systematic theologian who ever lived. And at the end of Romans 12, after going through a big theological treatise, he says, oh, the depth and the riches of both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He just bursts out in praise to God. Because the better you know God, the better you know his ways, the more deeply you'll worship him. Okay, second suggestion, use your knowledge of systematic theology to guide your personal spiritual walk. The better you know theology, the better you're going to know what to do when you find yourself in sin or find yourself facing temptation. Okay? Or you're trying to deal with some habit or you're trying to deal with your obnoxious relatives or whatever it might be. Okay? Your knowledge of theology will help you in those things. Third suggestion, use your knowledge of systematic theology as you train others, your children, your students. You know, a lot of folks here are ministering in the jails or involved in our ministry in the schools. You know, what do you do when a little kid, fourth, fifth, or sixth grade, comes up to you and says, my dog just died. Is he going to be with me in heaven? Well, that's a systematic theology question, okay? Um, Somebody asked me recently, I have a relative who just died. Is that person in the presence of Jesus right now, or is that person going to be unconscious until the rapture? That's a systematic theology question. How about this one, a big one? How can one person die on the cross to pay for the sins of millions and billions of people? That's a systematic theology question, and it's an important one. And every one of us should know the answer to that question. 
All right, fourth suggestion. Use your knowledge of systematic theology to guide the ways in which you minister to others. You know, if you're, if you're in leadership in the church, you need sound systematic theology to decide what are our strategies going to be to reach out to the community? What's a sound way to share the gospel? How should the leadership of our church be organized? And it's not just for leaders. It's for everybody who's involved in ministry. Now, the last one that I want to suggest, and we'll close with this, I believe. Yes. And this goes back to Jude, verse 3. Use your knowledge of systematic theology to guard against spiritual deception. It's almost exactly a year ago that I preached a message up here on the danger of false teachers. And in that message, I focused on the damage that they can do. Well, this message kind of ties in with that, okay? Because the best way to guard against false teachers is to know your doctrine so well that when somebody stands up and proclaims something that is flaky and that is contrary to what Scripture teaches, you know it right away. You've heard the story of how they train people to detect counterfeit money. You know what they do? They just give them lots of real money, new bills, old bills, worn-out bills, torn bills, and they handle that, and they handle that, and they handle that. And after weeks of doing that, they hand them counterfeit, and you know what? All they have to do is touch it, and they know it's fake. The way to know what is phony is to thoroughly know what is true, and that's what systematic theology is about. Okay. I hope I've encouraged you that systematic theology is a useful thing. Please consider participating in CBCBI. If you're not, if you are, don't quit now. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us in the dark about you or about anything that we need to know. Thank you that we live at a point in history where scripture is complete and it's available to us. Father, motivate each one of us to take advantage of this incredible treasure, to study it, to organize it in our thinking, and to use it to worship you, to serve others, to be more effective in our ministry. We pray this for the sake of your name and for the glory of the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.